What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Fertility fraud occurs when a doctor secretly uses their own sperm to impregnate their patients. Jacoba Ballard is an advocate for victims of fertility fraud, survivors of assault, and the donor conceived. Netflix's Our Father documents Jacoba's discovery that she was born from fertility fraud. Jacoba's advocacy journey began in 2014 when she took a genetic test in order to find out who her biological father was. She had no way of predicting exactly what she would find out or the path it would launch her down. Keep listening to find out what came next for this faithful family woman turned legal warrior. My mom met my dad. I will say birth certificate dad, so I don't confuse people. She met him and they found out he could not have children. My mom wanted a child and that led them to a fertility doctor. He said that he could help them. Did testing on my mom and on him. That's when my parents chose to use a donor. Back then in the late 70s, you didn't get to pick your donor. My parents were told he was going to be a medical resident used and used no more than three times. He matched blood and physical characteristics to my dad. So that's what they thought they got. It was $50 cash for the sperm. My mom went in and was inseminated and they told her that it would probably take multiple times. She called them back and told them she was pregnant and the nurse told her there was no way My mom said she can actually remember because they were kind of rude to her and said there's no way you get pregnant on the first try. And that's where I come in. It wasn't talked about when I was growing up, but when I was 10 years old, my mom told me that I was from a donor. As a 10-year-old, I had to have her explain the process, but as soon as she did, I understood every bit of it. I just had questions and I was like, well, I want to know who my biological father is. I think that's a very important thing for anybody. So many people misconstrue having a familial relationship with someone is the same as wanting to know your biological ancestors, your biological medical history. I was too young to really know what I wanted, but I wanted to put a name and a face to whose DNA I have in my body. But I was 10 years old and there was no way of doing that at the time. When I was between the ages 18 or 21, I actually called him and asked him if he still had my mom's paperwork or any information about my parents' donor. He said that all the records had been destroyed and he couldn't give me any of that information. So I kind of hung it up until later on in my 30s when commercial DNA testing started happening. 
after an initial solo investigation and before her genetic testing was done, Jacoba found who she thought could be some potential siblings. There was four of us that had met through a site that's no longer up and running, and we all decided to take a DNA test. We thought, okay, maybe we're siblings. If not, we can just go through this journey trying to find biological family. I thought I might find one or two siblings. That'd be great. When our results came back, I was one of eight half-siblings. It will always be ingrained in my mind. When my mom told me when I was 10 that they used a donor, my birth certificate dad said that they didn't. So I didn't know who was telling the truth, what the truth was. That day, it must have been my tone of voice. My back was to him. I was getting something out of my purse, and I said, I have a question for you. I'm going to ask it one more time, and you need to tell the truth. And that's when he said, it's true. I knew right then he knew what I was talking about. So I sat down and we were discussing how this does not change how I feel about him, how I view him. During that time, I get a text message from one of the other siblings that had tested and they got my results matched to them before I got my results. My text message said, hello, sister. So I'm freaking out, but I can't really do anything because I'm having this heart-to-heart conversation with my dad. Then I get another message from another sibling saying, you match us. And so it was pure torture for two hours of not being able to even process that. While my parents know my feelings, I'm open and they support me. I don't want to say this and sound kind of like I never kind of asked for permission. I was like, I'm doing this and you can come along for the ride. And that wasn't disrespectful to them, but it was, I guess. It's honoring yourself. Yes, yes. And things that aren't talked about are usually deemed as shameful and my life is not shameful. So I shouldn't have to hide a part of myself because I'm not ashamed of myself and I'm not ashamed of how I came here on this earth. But at the same time, I also wanted to respect my dad because I think piling so much on him at once and saying, I love you. You're still my dad. This doesn't change how we are. I felt like it was maybe kind of disrespectful to be like, by the way, I've got some siblings. That's probably not the right place to do that. So it was, it was kind of a mind fuck. From the very beginning, myself and a couple other sisters figured out that we thought it was Klein. The state didn't want to do anything. The police didn't want to do anything. We contacted the FBI and they didn't want to do anything. Roadblock after roadblock. Even trying to contact an attorney to get legal advice to help us and tell us how we're supposed to proceed. The only thing that we got from each one of them is we can't help you. There's no crime. Then you went to the state house and seemed like every representative, again, told us there was no crime or this is already covered from the detectives doing the investigation who told us that there was no crime. The prosecutor, who I'm sure everybody saw if they watched our father, where I don't think that he even cared. He did the bare minimum to try to shut us up. That's how I feel about that. And that's how I will always feel about that. It's so disheartening when you have Jody Madeira, IU law professor, who's saying, no, this can be done. You talk to other law professors in different states and they say the same thing. But then the state that I live in, who is supposed to protect their citizens, does not do it. 
we had to file with the attorney general's office a consumer complaint. And it took forever to get a response. At first, there was a team of investigators put on it. They didn't do anything. Then we were given a second set. I've learned so much through this process. Don't ever make phone calls. Make sure everything's in writing. The second set of investigators told me, I, I still have the email. They said that they didn't want me emailing or sending anything. They prefer me to call them. We were called in by a detective who wanted to interview us as well. The detective with IMPD, or Marion County Sheriff's Department. We had to have DNA tests done and we were taken into a small room where I know they don't take criminals, but you kind of feel like you are in a little interrogation room. Then come to find out the second set of investigators, and I'm doing air quotes here, they lost all of the evidence. Then we get a third set. Those ladies were actually really nice. They called me and wanted me to come in. I had already been driving an hour to Indianapolis so many times to be interviewed and everything else. They asked me to come in and I said no. The first set didn't do anything. The second lost all of ever. I mean, I sent them hundreds and hundreds of links and evidence for them to lose. And so the third, I said, if you want to speak to me, you can come here. So they actually did. I remember it was pouring down rain the day that they showed up to my house. They came in and spoke to myself and my mom. I didn't have any hope at that time, but they had collected all the evidence. Then we got to Delaney. We met with him. During this whole process though, we were never offered victim's advocate resources. I'm talking like even, hey, if you had therapy, reach out to this number. Which is invalidating your experience as a victim in essence. Yes, I had to ask for that on my own for all of us. Delaney, everything that was brought up to him, he said he could not do. There was either already a law for that or he could not be prosecuted for that. He was just very condescending to us as well. And almost every time I spoke to him, he made me feel like we were bothering him. He just wanted to get this case and get it gone so he does not have to deal with us ever again. I think it was more disheartening for me when we would show up as a group, myself and the others that were in the documentary, so a sister and her mom and a brother and his mom, listening to especially my brother's mom when she would say she was raped, it broke my heart. My sister wasn't even supposed to be from donor sperm. And for them to be totally disregarded and looked at and talked to like he didn't even care what they were saying, I tried getting it through to him. In the documentary, when I said to him, what if I spit in your face? He told me I'd be arrested for battery. And that is our mothers in the exam room looking at their vagina, his hands in their vagina, the most intimate thing ever. And especially as emotional as this was on our parents, the moms and the dads. And then you did that. You left the room and you masturbated and you came back and put it in them. But I can be arrested for spitting. How does that make sense? The only person that would help us was Angela Gnote, my local news reporter here in Indiana. Angela Gnote is an investigative journalist from Indiana with over 26 years of experience in the field. Jacoba reached out to her about the results of their at-home DNA tests with a Facebook message entitled, Please Help Me. Angela reports having been deeply moved by Jacoba's plea, as well as the difficulty Jacoba had faced in receiving amplification by that point. Within days, the women spoke about Jacoba's findings. 
Given the sensitive and unique nature of Jacoba's message, Angela agreed to help her do more investigative work as well as to report the story via any means she could. Angela's advocacy efforts for Klein's victims did not end once Our Father was released, though. At one point, the documentary depicts the 1963 death of Angela Golden, a four-year-old girl who was struck by Klein's car as she crossed the street. The director and producer of Our Father report not being able to locate any living family members of Golden in the production process. Thus, they took liberties with scene recreation, even changing Angela Golden's ethnicity. Upon seeing the film, Golden's family sought out Gnot to pursue proper acknowledgement and representation for their lost loved one. In the interview that was eventually conducted with Angela Golden's family, her sister Tanya Hughes said, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, why would you even put that in there? Because the story in and of itself, you don't need to hype it up. Hughes went on to say, they're dishonoring my sister's memory. The young girl's family was extremely grateful for Gnot's time and thoughtful expose. It's clear that Angela Gnot's advocacy for the victims of Donald Klein truly did help to change their legal path, as media attention and aid often can. I was so down and distraught. Like, I thought, you know, I'm going to give up. The siblings had said to give up, and I thought, well, I've been defeated. And then when she came along and I found her, she was a breath of fresh air that was like, let me do this for you. He was not charged with anything pertaining to what he did to our parents or to us. When we filed those complaints with the attorney general, he was sent letters. And come to find out now, the letters actually list our names and our addresses, which is also scary. Someone being accused of a crime can have that much access to your life and know where you're at. He received those papers and it asked him at any time if he had used his sperm on our parents or if he was our father, if he knew us. And I guess he responded to those papers saying that he had no clue who we are. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he said we had psychological issues <laughs> and we're threatening him. The crazy thing about that is I had to beg for my protective order. I wrote Tim Delaney and I'm like, can I please get it? And even then I told him, I said, I got up, the lug nuts were taken off of my vehicle. He was like, I'll try to get those to you in the next couple of days. Like no big deal that, you know, you woke up and you live in the middle of nowhere and this happened. But as far as the lug nuts, I can't say that that was him or anybody connected to him. But I do find it ironic. It was around the same time. So that is what he ultimately was charged with. The fact that he lied to the attorney general. Two counts of obstruction of justice. He served no jail time. That was all suspended. He had to pay a $500 fine. We asked, what about revoking his medical license? Well, the state was like, we can do that. We got there that day and they were like, we talked to him. And instead of revoking his license, we're going to let him surrender. When you surrender your license, that doesn't look bad. They did say, but we won't let him apply in the state of Indiana anymore. One sibling took the reins on this. There are parents and siblings that are filing police reports against him. We don't know where that's going to go yet, but we're hoping that it does go somewhere. 
because some of those other siblings want to see him behind bars for the rest of his life. There's 10 state laws so far. Congresswoman Stephanie Weiss contacted Angela Gnote, the reporter that helped me, and she said, I want to get a fertility fraud bill, the federal one. That has started, and let's hope that it goes through and it gets passed. I want to see something legally happen that actually pertains to what he did, not to a lie. At this point, I would love to have everyone that was involved with this case from the beginning investigated and legal action taken against them too, if it's proven that there was someone covering something up. I feel like he and his family should have to provide medical records because there are so many of us that are sick and it would help us. In the beginning, when we did find out that he was our biological father, we had his children from his wife who did not want it out. They said they wanted their mother protected. Nobody needed to know this, which I do understand. I feel like they are victims as well. Then my half-siblings who are from other mothers, they also did not want this public. They said it's enough having Angela Gnote. The story's been told. The state's going to take care of it. You need to wash your hands of it. And I was given an ultimatum. That was a really dark time for me because it was either have a relationship with them But if I continue to fight for justice, not just our story, but others that may be affected by fertility fraud, that they wanted nothing to do with me, it came down to the point of them telling me to kill myself. So, uh, sorry. No, this is a reality. I am so sorry that you ever even faced something like that. To not only denounce the truth, but to also add that layer of abuse on top of it. I'm just so sorry you went through that. I mean, there's moments you give up. I don't know if maybe that's just me and how I handle things. But for me, I had to give up, take a break and reset. And I guess build up enough courage to go at it again. I think there's a purpose for everything. I'm just glad that I was mentally stronger than what I thought I was. Because let me tell you, I was on the verge of doing so sometimes. When that was said, I would get in my head and I would think, you know what? They're right. Just do it. I'd make them happy. They hate me. All of them hate me. They said I've ruined their lives. I felt that way. I don't know. Something deep down in me wouldn't let me do it. Also, I have to thank my family I've been raised with, whether that's biological or not. I have some amazing parents. My stepdad, my mom, my husband, my kids, my daughter-in-law. I think that they have really helped me get through. But I I think stepping back and still even kind of being in that depressed state, I had to say, this is more than just you, Jacoba. So get your ass up and shake it off because there's people in this world that this is happening to. Because then at that time, others started popping up that were from a different doctor and they still aren't public. Speaking of that, our father mentioned that since your discovery, about 40 other fertility doctors in America were found to potentially have done similar acts of fraud and violation, correct? said 40-something, but there's actually been 60-something. The 60-something is either due to non-disclosure or those people still being private. And I thought, who's going to fight for them? And since I had already been found out, When we had filed with the attorney general, it was supposed to be private. Well, it did not maintain private and my name was plastered everywhere. And that's my thing for going public. It's like, well, I have the name Jacoba. Most people do not have that name. So it's not like it's hard to find me. 
That's when I thought you have a chance here to help other people. And that's what I chose to do. I want to use my voice to help others, no matter what it is, whether it's fertility fraud, sibling abuse, or sexual assault. I think all of these stories and anybody's way of grieving deserves to be heard. And if yours is an open way of grieving because you want justice or because you want to be an example for other people, then you deserve to be honored. At the end of the documentary, it said there were 94 known siblings. Have there been any updates since then? And have you found any more? The 94, that was wrong. At the time, it was like 87, I believe. There's more now, but I want to say like between 91, 92, or 93. Honestly, with everything going on in my life and some more blowback from siblings about this, I really have not kept up. I had to kind of sit back and reevaluate because I did do this. I did this for everyone. When I say everyone, I mean others from other doctors. But I had to disconnect from a lot of the people that I do share DNA with. And that was a hard time because you want to build these relationships with people. But then I had to sit back and realize that just because I share DNA with people doesn't mean that they're not toxic. I'm glad that there are more people on your side and that things are being pursued to help Bastion you, whether everybody is on board or not. Were there any details that you wish had been covered in the documentary that have either developed since or maybe that just weren't covered? Well, with COVID, not all of the siblings were able to like be on camera or speak their piece. And I really do wish that would have happened. There was also a ton of footage. I think they found it best to make it into a documentary movie. I was hoping that it would be a series. And I think it would have explained a lot more, especially diving more into the theories of things. For instance, some of the siblings got mad at me over the quiverful thing. Quiverful is a Christian theological ideology that sees large families as a blessing from God. It encourages procreation, abstaining from all forms of birth control, including natural family planning and sterilization. According to a 2015 HuffPost article, Quiverful incorporates anti-feminist and patriarchal beliefs. The group also allegedly promotes racist values as well. I feel like if that would have been more covered, they would have understood that more. It wasn't me just throwing out those words. It was the whole investigation part of it. Do we know why he did it? No, we'll never know. We won't know his true reasonings behind it. Personally, I think it was more of a control thing, but I do wish some of that stuff would have been covered more in detail, but of course with time constraints and everything. I would love to know if it was healing to be a part of the documentary, and then how was it to watch it back? I think creating it and helping through the whole time of investigating and getting updates from the investigations, it was validating and it was a healing process because I knew the end result was the world was going to know and that was going to be a little bit of justice for what we never received. As far as watching it after it came out, the first night I watched it, it was great. But then after that, not so much. A handful of siblings, and I don't even like that word. I feel like saying people I shared DNA with were messaging me. There was a part where when I scrolled through my 23andMe, it showed names. 
and the names were supposed to be blurred and their names weren't blurred, which it was corrected, but they blamed that on me. I've had to sit back and think like it's a public site. It actually says that when you go to sign up for DNA. So if you don't want people to know your name, you probably should not be on a public DNA site. But the things that have been said after that by some of them to me, blaming me for things, it was not great. And then it went further of them making fun of me and making fun of me being sick. And so I totally disconnected myself. I had to stop and think like, what is my goal here? I have a huge community of others that are from Fertility Fraud 2 that, you know, I work on legislation with and help others. Unfortunately, some of those cannot be the people I share DNA with. They're going to have to work through their own trauma or problems by themselves. It just breaks my heart that you have to have that level of perseverance without total support. You deserve total support. How do you give yourself that support and take care of Jacoba? What are some practices or tactics that have helped you persevere amidst all of these challenges you've faced? To be honest with you, the first couple years, I did not take care of Jacoba. I didn't. I kept saying, I will when I get time. I also worked full time. So I got really sick in 2020, but 2021 was the worst year. I couldn't walk. I had lost 50 pounds, really sick. I'm not 100% better, but I'm functioning now most days. I have a team of doctors that I see all the time and hopefully are getting me on the right track. But that's when I had to say I need to take care of Jacoba. But as far as support, I would have to say, number one, God for me and my husband, children, my grandma, my parents, my best friend, as well as some siblings. I have a handful of siblings that we have maintained relationships and we've always been there to support each other. I do have to say to Angela Gnode and Jody Madeira, who's the law professor, and Eve Wiley, who is from Fertility Fraud. She's my honorary sister. We say we're sisters. <laughs> She's became like one of my greatest friends. You know, when we have problems, we go to each other. Her and I, it seems like every day we're helping someone. Someone's reaching out to one of us and she can't help them, I can, and vice versa. But then when her or I have bad days, we call each other. She's my person. It's built a beautiful friendship out of our heartache. In turn, we didn't want to keep our mouths shut. And so now we're like, let's help others. Although it's an ongoing process and an absolute uphill battle at times, there is healing and getting it out there and seeking that justice. Oh, absolutely. If you could share one piece of advice with our listeners that you've gained through all of your work, what is it? Don't give up. I know that's just simple words and you will have times where you think it's useless and no one's going to help you. You've exhausted all efforts. Take a bath, go to sleep, do whatever you have to do, take a walk and then refocus, regroup and start at it again. Just don't give up. Protests, even if you have to do that, if you have to go stand at the state house or show up at their office, do it speak with them and get their attention and say, give me five minutes of your time. Because as people, we deserve this from our elected officials. We deserve the people we've voted for to help us. 
that is what they're supposed to be doing. And I feel like as American citizens, we need to hold them to that standard and they need to help us. I could not agree more. If people that hear this want to follow you, what is the best method of doing so? Instagram. You can follow me at Jacoba J. Ballard. And then on Facebook, Jacoba Ballard. We have a lot of really passionate listeners that want to make a change because they know that it has to happen. So I hope that we can help. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with us. I enjoyed this. Thank you so much. As of May 2022, Klein has settled in three civil cases, paying more than $1.3 million to former donor children or their families. He is currently facing three more pending civil cases. Fertility fraud is currently illegal in only 10 out of the 50 states and did not become illegal until 1996. California was the first state to enact a related law. The next nine states to pass legislation did not start to do so until 2019. The increased accessibility of at-home genetic testing kits in the early 2000s helped people discover their fertility doctor's deceit. According to a February 2022 article by the American Council for Science and Health, over 50 doctors in America have committed fertility fraud. However, a major issue in convicting these doctors who practiced the fraud remains to be that their actions were not considered crimes at the time that they were committed. Several states are currently creating legislation to advance the system's approach towards prosecuting fertility fraud. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. There was an elder man in a truck that was parked right beside me. What I remember is I was fumbling around in the car. As I'm opening the door, by the time I turned, I'm looking into a barrel of a gun. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.